All right, everybody. It is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations, and um, I've got some uh, powerhouse folks lined up for you tonight because um, we're going to be talking about how the music industry is changing and how women are a big part of what's happening, and that's quite frankly uh, somewhat news to me because I went to a sync up conference last week that the uh, Jazz and Heritage Foundation and the New Orleans Business Alliance put on in the, the Jazz Festival Foundation's headquarters. And um, uh, first of all, on the panel, I met some very powerful women, but there was an audience full of women in music from this area, all of whom are uh, deeply involved in the music industry and, and, and making things happen. So it was a pretty eye-opening evening, I have to say. So first up, we have Michelle Thomas, who is essentially an all-around entertainment executive because she's she's been through quite a few levels of, of work, which is what makes her so interesting because... Um, yeah, she's not uh, she's not a one line uh, poem. She's she's got a lot going on. Michelle, you're there. I am a little under the weather, so there's a little extra bass in my voice, but I'm here. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, when you travel, you you run that risk. There's going to be somebody next to you with something. Absolutely. I thought <laughs> I made it out clear, but apparently not. So Michelle was uh, was the featured speaker for that evening. And, um, I, you know, Michelle, I'm going to let you, I, I, I really resist t- giving people's bios because I don't know what they would emphasize. So I, that's why I do that little three-sentence bio in my newsletter. So tell us a, just, a, you know, essentially um, who you are. Um, I think what's most important about who I am in this conversation is that I am a Louisiana native. I grew up in the River Parishes in Edgard, um, had band as a mandatory class in the fourth grade, fell in love with music, and knew that somehow, some way in my life, I was going to make a career of it. Not super talented in front of the camera, but um, learned that I had a knack for working with creative people and helping them to make their dreams come true. Um, so I started out working at Interscope Records, which in the when I started there in the mid-90s was the largest record company in the world and was fortunate enough to work with some really major acts like Enrique Iglesias and Sting, Dr. Dre, um, came up completely with the marketing plan for the Pussycat Dolls, Uh, moved from there to Motown, and now I work with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. They have an independent label. Jimmy and Terry are super producers. Um, They've been called the architects of modern pop, being credited with creating the sound for Janet Jackson, uh, working with multi-platinum artists like Tony Braxton and Bruno Mars, um, New Edition, Boys to Men, just a couple of people you might have heard of. <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 I was a kind of real small-town local uh, entertainment producer during my years in New Orleans. I used to do a thing called the Do Drop In after the LaSalle Do Drop In at the Contemporary Arts Center. And then after that, I did a lot of just, you know, booking and stuff for the conventions. And I'm not a celebrity person. I, I really don't care. A, a, a person is a person, and I really and find that person interesting and their story interesting. Or not, and their celebrity doesn't affect me. And I feel the same. I am more intrigued with someone's talent um, than I am with the celebrity of it all, except there was one person in my career that rendered me speechless. It was Barry White. He asked me what my zodiac sign was, and I said Scorpio, (laughs) and he said, show you right. And I just had all these flashes of my mom and my grandmother playing Barry White songs, and I just sort of like, I lost it. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that guy. <laughs> that was wow. Awesome. Yeah. Um, no, well, but that's a different kind of celebrity. That Again, that's somebody who is, is just responsible for uh, creating so much of the music that uh, is part of our lives. Right. Um, so, Michelle, give me a little feeling of a kind of a back in the day and, uh, and, the, and the future as it's evolving. I'm real interested in trends and, and where we've been and, and, and where we are and where we're going. And so I'm really interested to hear your perspective on that. And then um, the the dominant theme I thought at the forum last week was um, how women have been able to survive in what was characterized by several as a misogynist 
industry, and I want to hear your viewpoint on that too, and how you all have figured out how to survive and and strive and 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 push through uh, to the top rungs of the ladder as you have. So that's that's kind of the the two themes of the conversation I was hoping we would have tonight. Sure. Um, back in the day in the music business when I started, it was really about. Um, creating a solid piece of art in a CD form, um, making beautiful artwork, really talented artists, great live shows. It was a different kind of music consumer. With the onset of the digital age, the consumer has changed a lot. So there's an evolution in music, as there is in everything culture-driven in life. Things evolve, things come back around. We are currently right now in a place where music is consumed by pretty much everywhere digitally. It's either streamed on YouTube or Spotify or any one of the platforms that carries the musical element. The lifespan of a song is really fast because it's so easy to get to. They tend to burn out really quickly. People who listen to them Mm, listen to them over and over and over, and then they move on to the next. Because there is an abundance of music, it is easy to sort of keep moving. Um, So it's a different kind of consumption that happens in 2019, especially the way the major labels have their businesses set up. With the onset of the digital world, um, I was in the middle of that transition from CDs to digital, and there was a big panic in the music industry about how do we survive that, how do we find additional streams of income. And the the industry really kind of evolved in another way that wasn't just music-oriented. We created companion pieces like... Um, I was at Interscope when we developed Beats Headphones, and for the Pussycat Dolls, we had a television show where we searched for the next top Pussycat, and, you know, we created clothing and lingerie based on the brand. So record labels started doing more behind the scenes and trying to build up revenue from outside sources rather than just selling music. So now that we've crossed that hump, that revenue-generating platform for major labels still exist, so that goes hand-in-hand right now with streaming, and when artists are signed, they really are signing brands so that they can build on not just the music, but be able to create other revenue-generating sources along with that. That's kind of where the record industry is today. It's not, and it's, it's the thing that frustrates me, because when people ask me what I want the music industry to be again, is I want the music industry to be about the music. Right now, it's really just about brands. It's about who has a catchy song and what partner we can go to and, you know, do a commercial and have them fund us or whatever. Like, it's really about it's really about the dollars and cents and building brands. It's about the bottom line, the market share, as opposed to being just about the music. But as everything is evolving, it's easy to see that it is starting to become about the music again. There's a huge demand for vinyl pieces, especially collector's vinyl, um, colored vinyl. There are vinyl fairs. Kids are really getting interested in looking at liner notes again and, and having something tangible to hold on to that has artwork on it, something that they might want to put up on the wall and share with their friends. So slowly but surely, it feels like the music industry is evolving back to being about the music. I can only hope. But that is kind of, I mean, you know, we're in a, in a brand development place now, and moving hopefully into a more music-driven business of music, which would be awesome. Well, it's, it's it's pretty scary to think about the domination of the brand because <clears throat> one of the things I, I've been kind of a, uh, a junkie, a total addict lately for the cable shows because I've been following the Washington drama. I have a, a lot of politics in my. Um, um, my career as well so uh, i'm fascinated by both the journalism and the legal stuff and the and the uh, total uh, political <laughs> war that's going on really it's almost like the it's, i i call it the second civil war yeah there's it's a lot going on some nasty stuff but um at, at the same time it's it it feels to me like um uh i i look at the all of the the women on television and i'm ecstatic to see all the women but they're all very pretty so I'm saying, okay, it's not just about the quality of the journalism. It's also, again, as you're saying, about the packaging and, and about the appeal that, that, uh, that, that mm. brings along with it. So, um, I, I, when you tell me it's all about brand and it's all those other merchandise. So in a way, that was kind of a, I wouldn't say that was a very positive development that you had to start making money off all those other things, you know, off the, um, merchandise. 
of uh, the concepts and the brands and not of the music. So how, it's not, it's not a positive thing. And the thing that really I, I repeat to everyone who says, what are you guys doing? Like, what is that about? Um, there has to be a demand. I mean, you know, it's always the law of supply and demand. For record companies right now, if we make things available digitally, we don't have to manufacture CDs, we don't have to ship CDs, we don't have to pay for people to make sure the CDs are in stores. There's a huge cost that's alleviated by just releasing something digitally. Yeah, and if the people that. who really want great music aren't making a demand for it, the record companies don't feel a necessity to do it. Mm-hmm. And as we stand right now, um, the only people who are asking for music and really and, and being active consumers are people who understand how to digitally consume, which is unfortunate because I think there's a whole other generation of people who would really like to hear new great music, but we're not making it available to them. So we have to find a way, and I feel like this is one of my challenges, is to create a demand for a higher quality, more you know, creative kind of release of music because my fear is also that in 20 years from now, what is the catalog going to look like at record labels? Because we always survive on our catalog. It's never the new releases that put, you know, the money in our pockets. It's always the catalog. We build up artists, we create these legacy artists, and then that money continues to flow in for year after year. And my fear is that with this model that exists today, where are we going to be in 20 years from now? So I feel like one of my personal challenges is figuring out how to create a demand for real talent and real music that will last, that will have legacy. So what? how would you describe the difference between a catalog now in the digital era and a catalog as, as it what that meant before and might in the future again? Well, catalog, catalog music... Um, a record goes into the catalog division when it is, I think we could, two years is when we consider it catalog. So catalog records are ones that continue to sell forever. They are so popular, the artists are so popular. Because, you know, back in the day when I first started working in, in music, we took the time to develop artists. Like we took them from who they were as a raw creative talent and groomed them to be superstars on stages and standing toe to toe with other superstars and giving those kinds of performances so that the consumer bought into that artist as a package. So when you buy into that artist and you always want to have that artist stuff, and if we repackage a, a record or if we do a limited edition or a colored vinyl of something that's been released like 20 years, 15 or 20 years ago and people love the artist, they're going to buy it. So that that's catalog. That's the thing that your company is based on. Um, the problem with that theory of how the record business works is that we're releasing artists that have like these one-off hits that nobody's going to want to buy into 20 years from now. Yeah. So, um, as of course, in order for you to be as uh, innovative and creative and thoughtful as as you are about the industry and achieve what you're trying to do, you had to climb again up the rungs, and um and and that goes back to that second question I asked. Right. And uh, sometime before we're finished, I'm going to join in. Um, Trina uh, Shoemaker, you remember who is her? Awesome. Yeah, She's awesome. the engineering lady, <laughs> um, who is uh, uh, quite yeah awesome uh, to to address this question. But let's get started with you. So, um, w- tell me about your first job in the industry, and then tell me about how you overcame the challenges. So, my first job in the industry was working in the artist relations department, and that was the department that managed all of the tour life and the road life and promotional activities for artists. And I literally got hired fresh out of college because they needed someone to travel with a young girl group. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I knew someone in the in the office, and I did a great interview and got the job. I learned many years later that that's not how people get into the music business, but it, that's how it happened for me. And so I started out working in artist relations, eventually moved into product management, um, and then running the marketing and operations for the labels that I worked with. Um, and it's not easy by the slightest stretch of the imagination being a woman in a very misogynistic business. And I think I mentioned this the other night that um, within the business, a couple of men have been made examples of 
And so now the business feels like, hey, see, we let go of that guy, and we, you know, this guy got some ramifications for what he did, and then it all went away, and it, it went back to the way that it's always been. I'm a fighter, and I'm a really passionate person, so I, if I believe in something, I'm going to fight hard. And I love what I do. Like, I love music. I love artists. And I, and I love developing careers. So for me, when guys just did stupid things or said stupid things to me, I just, you know, I, I said this the other night, too. I also believe that if something is supposed to happen for me, it's going to happen, and that I have to stand up for myself. I have to make sure that my voice is heard, and I have to not bow down to foolishness just because some man thinks that that is supposed to be how I get to the next level. And I've just always been very strong in that. I've always had morals, and it's it's been a joke among, among some of my friends because they're like, we can't believe that you don't just even entertain this. And I really don't because it's not who I am. I don't care what your position is. I don't care what th- – and I've had th- – I, I have been sexually harassed. I've had my job threatened because I wouldn't give in to a man. I have had extremely inappropriate gifts given to me by men in the company. Um, and in every instance, I just stood my ground and felt like if for some reason there was some ramification for me to not be here because of it, then I'm not supposed to be here. And make no mistake about it, some of them were really hard fights. Like there's the, there was one instance of sexual harassment of a man who shall be nameless, but if I said his name, everyone would know who he was. Um, and it was really a fight because he at the time was an A&R person, and I was actually told that because I spoke up about what he did that I embarrassed him, and now he had to walk around with his head down in shame. How dare you do that to him? <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. Do it to him. <laughs> Right. You know what he did to me. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the environment. And so my response, and that was my response, I'm sorry. And I said, I said, I'm sorry, due to him. Can, when somebody wants to talk to me about what he did to me, then we can have this conversation. Are we done? And I got up and walked out of the room. And, I, I mean, that's just, you have to be very very strong in your convictions about who you are to deal with that level of misogyny because it is I can't say a lot of the stories. I mean, we're on air. You might, like, FCC might come to get your license if I really started getting into details. But it's really rough. And you have to be very strong in who you are to kind of deal with it. And you have to be, just like in any other instance in this country, in everything that we do as women, you have to be twice as good as the man. Yeah. And then we're even at twice as good as the man, you probably still won't get the recognition that he does. Or he'll take the credit for the thing that you did. So I, I'm, this is about where I'm going to join uh, 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 Trina into the conversation. But before, just before I do, go ahead. Uh, let's add her on air. Um, so Trina Shoemaker, um, who is a music producer, engineer, and mixer with Dauphine Street Sound, which I believe is her company, um, works here in New Orleans and in Mobile, is on the air with us now too. But Trina, just before I come to you, I want to just uh, uh, add something to what, uh, Michelle was just saying, and I don't know whether you could hear her or not, but we just I got can. onto the subject. Hello, su- Michelle. Hi, Trina. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. We we just got onto the subject of, um, you know, uh, a woman in the music industry and how you deal with it. <clears throat> with all of what's been going on with the Me Too movement, the, the thing that I, feel, I thought we would have gotten to by now, and I don't think we have, and, and we'll see how we go forward, is not just the egregious incidents of sexual harassment, but the more subtle form of men basically running things in general as kind of a one boys club or another, and um, women having to kind of survive in that context and, and not necessarily progressing in their industry the way a man would. So, in other words, I'm talking about just literally um, uh, women just not um, moving up the ladder the way the guys do and, and the subtler forms of, of, let's say, discrimination and challenges. Does that resonate for you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just kind of made your statement that you have to, like, walk away from that and, and be who you should be. Um, and I, I know that the theme that I heard very much, but i just thinking of some of my own experiences in the political media. I'm, I've been in the political media arts uh, world, and um, 
you know, I was doing political media as good as any guy, and I found it was a much harder struggle to to um, build the business. Um, is this the moment that I do I speak? Now? You can. <laughs> yeah. Okay, very good. Um, it's a big it's a big subject. It is it is many tiered and faceted. One thing that comes to mind immediately for me in terms of jumping right into like sexual harassment or, or, or certainly like sexual assault or abuse, subtle or blatant, um, I would be more like Michelle. Um, I'm tall, I'm strong, and I, I, I generally, certainly, you know, guys did weird stuff all the time. They still do, but, and I'm 54, which is very creepy, but, um, <laughs> it, I'm a fighter, and I would. It would be one or both of us will be going to the hospital tonight, and you will hurt me, <laughs> but I will hurt you too, and the police will be. Call- like in other words, there wasn't going to be a moment where somebody could corner me and do something weird without me coming out literally swinging, because I grew up in that kind of. You know, you had to fight young to hold your ground, and it never left me. But I'm utterly nonviolent. But I'm thinking of a bigger social. Um, picture because I spend a whole lot of time alone in a room with people's music and I very rarely even see people anymore. I just get the tracks and I mix and I send the tracks away. So I'm almost like um, uh, an invisible mover and I like it that way. But I'll try to make this not too verbose. So I'm going to make sure that I just make a a clear point. Michelle, for example, and yourself, Jean, we were born human beings. And human beings, I believe, are born with a more dominant personality um, or, a, or a less dominant personality. But because of the way that our entire you know, culture and civilization evolved, men were given a, a, a dominance free card. So you could have a man who's born dominant. Great. You could have a man who's born not dominant. You can have a woman, a female, who's born dominant, uh, a, a female who is not so that I walk into a room, I'm a naturally dominant person, and not bad dominance. I don't mean I want to take over. I just mean that kind of, like, thing that's a dominance quality. It's a genetic, actually, inherited quality. And, and I, I, have, I have had to earn the right to exercise it. Um, I would still have to be called, oh, she's a dominant female instead of a dominant person. So if I have to walk into a room full of people and we're tracking and whatever and, and there's a little bit of, I don't know, something's not going exactly right, there may be a, uh, is this boring? Are you guys, is, should I carry on with this? No. Am I, I going to make a point? I am. There may be a person <laughs> in that room who has by sheer um, right of birth been given male dominance but does not have any idea what to do with it, what you do if you're dominant, what you do with it is you lead and you help and you build and you bring things across the plate. So I have to not only battle that lack of a natural dominant opponent, male or female, makes no difference, or, or somebody who we could team with, and I have to also earn the right to just be my natural dominant self. So how do we get out of that? How do we help women who are just born with that spirit we do. We have to. We have to fight to exercise it, and it almost has to be justified. When really, I was just born this way. I didn't. I, I didn't want to be born in a world where I had to kind of work a bit harder. But it's everywhere. It's been my entire life. But I do refuse to acknowledge that there's not one thing that I can't do. Uh, I will do it if I want to do it. Um, and I'm not that attractive. It's not like I walk in the room and everybody passes out because I'm gorgeous. And You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of like, give me a break. You know, I'm pimply, I'm skinny, and I'm smart. So there's not that much to sexually harass, ultimately. Final point. I didn't have a baby until I was 39, so I could never be threatened with, well, you'll be fired. Well, fine, I'll go get another job, but not, well, shit, I'll, I'm sorry. Oh, I take it back. It's all right. Go. You know, Keep how going. can I feed my kid? Seriously, like, I can't lose this job. There are women who have to suffer abuse that do have children to, um, to house and feed, and they cannot punch somebody and then get fired for it, but still have gotten a swing in. Um, that's what I think right now. If I could just. 
chime in a little bit about that. Please. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about, about having to stand, you know, in your own strength and sort of defend that. And someone asked me about that at the sync up, actually, and I told them that I, I remember the exact moment that I was okay with who I was. There was a book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and one of the agreements is don't take anything personally, and it basically says that the way that other people speak to you or look at you or think about who you are is really a projection of their own reality. It's not who you really are. So it doesn't matter. Exactly. Like it's insignificant. I told so my son, the moment that I grasped that concept, I was like, wait a second, I can be me, and it doesn't really matter. And that, you know, that book was life-changing for me, in all honesty. Uh, who's the author? Don Miguel Ruiz. <clears throat> it's called The Four Agreements. It's a really simple read, but it's basically four agreements that you make with yourself. <clears throat> um, and, again, the, the agreement that's don't take anything personally is really that, like, what you know, the wording of it, that other people, the way that other people see you or address you or say things to you is a, is a reflection of their reality, not your own. Right. Right. I, I heard that actually from almost everybody at the uh, sync up. That was a, that was, that was a very clear theme to what people were saying. Um, I wanted to, um, uh, so that, that, that was a big part of the evening. And, and actually that I've been to a lot of the sync ups over the years and they were mainly sticking to the professional subjects. This one was much more nurturing and much more about, um, helping each other and, and to understand how to, uh, survive in the business. It was it was really a remarkable evening. I have to say, congratulations to both Jazz Fest and the World's Business Alliance. But um, I, I also um, am fascinated to to really uh, uh, get uh, this uh, vision into your world that you are experiencing. And uh, again, I don't know whether you heard the conversation before you came on, uh, Trina, but we were talking about how. The uh, digital music world has changed so much uh, from uh, before, because I don't know how to characterize before other than to say analog, which is meaningless. But um, Trina, from your standpoint, we were talking about um, the way it's uh, changed and having to brand music instead of just put out the music there. Um, how, How has the... Uh, recent technical changes in in your industry affected what, how you work. You you said you work with tracks in a room by yourself. That doesn't sound as much fun as working with a bunch of musicians in a room. Oh no, I, I disagree. But I'm a I'm a bit of a recluse. Oh, no, okay. I I only want the the song. Um, I don't need to be around the musicians. I love them. I'm married to one. But after 34 years, the musicians are fantastic. But I actually don't want them around at all. Um, because I don't need them, they need me to mix their song, and uh, and uh, then it's just me and the song. Um, but how it changed, it, it was devastating and also freeing. The um, the 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 her, that when when digital technology entered, and then when music, you know, that became the the main medium for sales, um, it destroyed my previous income of an analog, you know, engineer, mixer, producer. You had to go into a studio. Nobody had a studio in their house except for, like, Paul McCartney and Prince. Like, people, you had to go to studios, and we worked at those studios. And so my income, um, the year that that big recession, you know, that it began, it it was 2008 or whatever. But anyway, bottom fell out, and um, it was very hard for a few years, but... Because digital technology existed, I could also buy a very small system that I could have at home, that I could start doing some mixing at home, and through that was able to readjust my entire way that I survived by making my my living. I bill hourly, Um, and I built myself a small studio, but now a very wonderful studio in Fairhope near Mobile. So I got a place at home, and it's my mix room. If it hadn't been digital technology, I, I would never have been able to afford a console, a tape machine, and all of the stuff that goes with actually powering up, you know, uh, a, a, a full-size console and a, and a big studio. So it killed my career, and then it made my career possible simultaneously. So interesting. That's really, really interesting. Uh, so how does that go forward? How do you see how, – how is that going to be evolving? Uh, I have no idea because I'm 54, so I figure I got – 
maybe, you know, 14, 15 more years where I can see and hear because <laughs> my eyes are shot from staring at a screen and my hands are shot from sitting in the same position. So I don't know where it's going, Jean. I really don't. I know that people will always need music because music has one thing. No matter what's happening, if you love a song or you love that one part of that one song, you can always just go back and play it again, and it'll be there for you. Nobody can take it away. You own it. You bought it. The artist provided it. They sold it to you. Once you buy it, it becomes yours to mark your life and to, to build your entire emotional architecture around. And you can always go back to that favorite part every single time. So uh, that won't go away. I don't know how we will receive it. But um, but things, we'll without without a doubt, I mean, things are changing, and the technological, the speed of technological change is, is, but our is ears ramping have up. not changed. They are still the opposite of a microphone. They are still a membrane that is hit by a sound wave that is actually in the air. That causes an cur- electrical current, ultimately, to go to your brain, and we repeat that coming out of speakers. Everything else has changed, but what hasn't changed is our ability to perceive music through our ears. Therefore, we will always need a version of a speaker to hear with, whether it's an earbud or a pair of tannoy, uh, Genelec, um monitors that I'm looking at now. That hasn't changed at all, and we will still need the music. So I don't know if I'll be able to keep, keep making a living as people figure out how to mix their own stuff. Let, uh, let, uh, let's come back to that. But uh, I'm, uh, Michelle Thomas, or we're about to lose her. She's got to move on. So let me uh, finish off with Michelle. Michelle, um, we were talking about the same question. You know, how is this evolving in the future? What do you see as the most significant development coming up that is going to, again, have that radical change uh, impact that uh, digitizing did? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that's a big one. I know, but, I mean, it's out there, right? We, we it, It's out there. These things um, become aware, is, but they're there. Hmm. It is out there, and I have some inside information that I actually cannot speak about right at the moment. But I can tell you that um, things will probably happen that will really bring true audio perfection to the masses and as opposed to living in a digital age now where you know kids who are consuming music on their phones only know you know what mp3s sound like and they for the most part aren't familiar with vinyl and like that really crisp sound of a song that's all going to come full circle and i think it's going to happen relatively quickly in a different in a different format though it's why it's going to be a different format. It'll be a different format. So we're going to have to go through a whole other uh, approach, us consumers, to how we um, uh, get our music, find it, and and uh, um, how how you listen to it. Yeah, how you listen to it. Mm-hmm. Very intriguing. I can't wait. So when when it when it goes public, I'll be waiting to hear from you to uh, <laughs> You've got and, uh, it. tell me all about it and how to approach it. You got it. Michelle, um, uh, thank you so much. I had no idea, actually, that you were from New Orleans. I mean, you are a woman of the world, and I congratulate you on what you've achieved. And um, y'all come back and see us as much as you can. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> All right. Thank Bye, you. Trina. Bye. Now, Trina, let's let's finish, uh, go a little further with you for a minute, because you are also, you, did you grow up in New Orleans? Oh, I just lost her, too. Oh, Trina hung up also. Hey, Trina, if you can hear me, call back in. Do You you don't have a record of her number handy. Oh, dear. All right. Well, then we're going to move on, and we're going to bring in <clears throat> our next guest, uh, Jan Smith, who's producing a black film festival coming up this weekend. So this, this is uh, happening now. Um, and I, I'm sorry we lost Trina. I really – we got her back. Have, come, no, come in anyway, but because um, we'll transition. So, Trina, hello. I am here. Hi, yeah. No, I was hoping you weren't going to go away. I just, we had to let uh, Michelle go. So, um, I, I wanted to just um, uh, go uh, back up because I did a little, just a little bit of biographical from the beginning kind of thing with um, uh, with Michelle, and I just wanted to uh, catch up and do that with you. Are, are you from here? Are you from New Orleans? No, I grew up outside of Chicago. Oh, okay. Um, but I uh, I moved to New Orleans in 1990, and I lived there 
up until the moment um, of Katrina. Really? And then I lost my house, and uh, I lived in Gentilly at that point. Oh, I'm, so. I, I, I'm sorry again and again and again for so many of us who have lost our homes. I did not lose mine, but my daughter lost hers. So, um, But New Orleans survived, and I'm just down I-10, you know, so it's like I still <laughs> oh, live right. in New Orleans. Right, exactly. But um, so how did you um, – how did uh, give me kind of the the early stages of uh, early steps of your uh, development because I think a lot of folks out there who who may be listening they're at that stage they're not at Michelle's stage or not at your stage as it is now but t- talk to me about the beginning and how you um, built that dominant strength that you were talking about. Well, that 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 was more of a of a let's just like a born tendency. I was born you know, with, with, a, with a strong personality. Um, and it was never, you know, it was never conditioned to be removed when I was a child. In other words, that would have been nurtured, you know, um, you know, just to be not tough, but just, I don't know. I, I, I didn't grow up in a girly world, that's for sure. And so there was no part of my upbringing that said, you, you know, you shouldn't say that or you should maybe hold your tongue or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? It was very kind of modern household. Um, but I, uh, I started my career working um, as a secretary at Capitol Records in the 80s, and I wanted to work in the studio. I wanted to be an engineer. Um, I wasn't even quite sure what that was fully, but I knew, you know, the person that recorded the music. But they wouldn't um, hire me in the studio there even as a runner. So I traveled some, and then I went to New Orleans, and I was a maid in New Orleans, and I cleaned studios. And when I cleaned the studios, uh, I was able to learn and be taught and and how to record. And then you um, start really building that career. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I didn't go to New Orleans to be a maid. I went there, but I knew how to clean, so that was my way into the studio, and I eventually started cleaning and making cables for Daniel Lanlaw's studio in uh, New Orleans. It used to be there called Kingsway. I remember and, that. Um, and I became a cable maker and a you know, runner for them. And then um, I started you know, just learning to record from those guys. Um, but I, I built mine out of – I carved mine out of granite. Um, I just – there were no other women. It was just me. I never met another woman uh, engineer – until decades later and um but i just didn't i didn't view it from me being a woman in the studio i viewed it from just i'm in the studio and uh it was weird i had blinders on learning to record in that time was so enormous um understanding sound and what to do with it that i wasn't really thinking about anything else Mm. So you're just really immersed in the uh, process. Fully. But I also had no <clears> money, <throat> so it wasn't like I had a life outside of that. I mean, I ate whatever the band ate and whatever they had left over, I ate that. <laughs> I often slept in the studio. I had no car insurance. I had no health insurance. Nothing. You know, I just lived and breathed that, the studio. And I had no kids and I had no boyfriend. So it was my entire life. So what I'm hearing is actually a story I often hear from creatives who really um, carve uh, that that granite, um, and and that is uh, the focus, just an incredible, intense focus on what you're doing. That is yeah. so much a part of 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 how you move forward. Um, what's the next piece of music we're going to hear out there from you? Um, well, the the, uh, the they won't be out until quite probably mid to late spring, I guess. Um, I'm not really sure when they'll come out. I just, I'm currently mixing a record for a girl named Shannon McNally, and these are all people I don't think you've heard of. Things that you could already get now would be Tanya Tucker's new record. I mixed that. Um, that's a great record that's been nominated for a bunch of Grammys, which is awesome. Great. And um, a record by a group called The Secret Sisters. Their record also just came out. Super cool. Um a record by the Wood Brothers, their new record, I mixed that, and um, working on a record for Bob Johnson and a record for somebody named Sam Ray. And I'm about to start mixing a band called um, American Aquarium. So <laughs> lots of, you know, not they're, they're not super famous people, but they're amazing. So 
So I'm not sure how many of your listeners have heard of any of those. Well, I I wrote them all down, and I'm going to check them all out because there's nothing I love more than discovering new talent. Um, and and you're one of them, uh, Trina. I'm glad to have discovered you, and and you get back into the city from time to time. I'm sure. So let us know what you're up to, and come back and visit with us another time. Um, we've got a, another guest coming up who's going to be telling us about a, a, an incredible black film festival that he is producing that's coming up this weekend. And he started out as a spoken word artist, so he was out there in front and then uh, moved behind, so to speak. But I think you still do the uh, spoken word to an extent, right? So, uh, this this is um, – let, let me just uh, – well, you, I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, in a second. But this is Gene Smith, and he's the festival producer for the Black Film Festival coming up this weekend. Hi there. Yeah. Um, so I, I do have a little bit of background in poetry, and actually we still do a, a once-a-month event, which we did uh, last Friday. It's every first Friday at Ashe Cultural Center, and um, so we just had Pass It On open mic um, a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the spoken word artist that I know the best is um, Chuck Perkins. Who- oh, yeah. I brought him to uh, to WBOK. He was a, a co-host with me okay, good. Uh, on my show on occasion and then uh, moved into it further. Um, Trina, thank you so much. We'll catch up with you next time you're in town. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. So, Jean, um, again, this is another uh, a story to me uh, that um, uh, talks to focus, uh, commitment, intensity, caring about art because, um, as I said in my newsletter, there are things that are out there that are really special and important that we just don't have any exposure to Mm -hmm. because we're just not on the same track. Mm -hmm. So a lot of – I've caught it just occasionally by accident on Turner Classics or somewhere on on some station, some of the great films that have been made by black film directors and producers Mm -hmm. over the years. Um, And they are just a a whole treasure that a lot of us with my color don't get to see, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's good that the, that there is that exposure. Um, but it is few and far between, like you say. And, um, a lot of, uh, black filmmakers have gotten their start with these kinds of grassroots incubators, like the film festival circuit and, you know, just, uh, kind of building their audience themselves and then, and then making it so that their value is recognized and then using that to catapult them into, uh, uh, bigger arenas. Mm hmm. So that's uh, that's kind of what the the goal with the Black Film Festival of New Orleans is is to just to be that incubator and and uh, to provide an opportunity for independent filmmakers um, like myself. I'm you know I'm an independent filmmaker. That's kind of how I got my start with producing the film festival. Um, just to you know provide a platform uh, where the work can be seen, where you can reach a bigger audience, where you can maybe add some accolades to you know your um, to your resume and and uh you know just have your uh your your worth promoted in a, a way that gives you the opportunity to uh take that next step so um uh, let's go back to the beginning again because I, <laughs> I i really i do like to talk about uh, pe- people's beginnings because there's so many people out there who are at that beginning stage mm-hmm. and and helping them think about how they can empower themselves and move on to the next stage is always important to me so yeah. um tell me about your beginning are you from here? Oh yeah, uh, forty-one years. Yep, my my three months displacement's the only extended period that I've been gone. So where'd you go? Uh, went That's to from Katrina, right? Went, yeah, uh-huh. went to uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. My girlfriend at the time was in Howard Dental School, so I was like, okay, well, I can go up there and then you know try to uh, see if the East Coast has anything to offer me. It did not. That's you no, like I didn't want that. No, okay. <laughs> I got right. back here as soon as I could. And, uh, you know, with a renewed interest in trying to, um, be a facilitator of the arts, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, a little bit of a shock to me, uh, knowing how, or to, to realize how important some of these things were that I hadn't really latched on to. You know, I, I thought about all the things that I just couldn't do, like go downtown and hear a brass band on a corner. You know, things that had just been like, just you know, it was there whenever I wanted it, and all of a sudden it wasn't. And I was like, 
man, you know, I want to see my city be my city again. So I got to start with me. And uh, so that was, you know, the goal coming back from Katrina. And then uh, and this film festival is definitely, um, you know, in line with that, just part of the, the process of just trying to build the, the, the art scene for artists and for the community. So that's kind of what, what I do, too. I don't know if you know uh, anything about my organization. We'll talk about it offline. But, okay. Um, so, so tell me about the festival itself. Let's, let's not make sure we get that in before. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the festival is going to take place this weekend at three locations. The first will be Stella Jones Gallery in, uh, it's, uh, building on 201 St. Charles. And uh, that's going to just be documentary screenings at that one. So I have a couple of short docs that are really good. One about Gwendolyn, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks that's really good. Another one um, is from a local filmmaker named Carl Harrison. Uh, it's about Spy Boy Dow, so following the, the Mardi Gras Indian traditions. And then is he that, a Mardi Gras Harrison? Huh? Does he come from the Harrison family? No, he's not. He's not one of. He's not one of those guys. Okay, uh, no, right. I, uh, well, I don't. I don't think so. I never asked him, so maybe. But I don't think so. I don't think okay. he's one of those guys. Uh, the, you talking about the mute, like Donald Harrison and yeah, the musical? Yeah. I don't think he's one of those. I don't know. But I got. I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll Check I'll pull it out. out. Yeah, I'll yeah. see. Um, and then so Friday evening we'll be at the New Orleans African American Museum and there will be um, a themed night. So the the theme of this year's festival is Afro Futures. That's the African American Museum in uh, Central City, right? The McKenna? Uh, no. Oh, no, no, the one in uh, the Treme. Yep, exactly, okay. on All Governor right. Nichols, 1418 right, right, right. Governor Nichols. Yep, and um, so that event is um, – that there's an exhibit currently in uh, that museum called uh, Afro Futures Exhibit, and, and mm-hmm. so there's some um, some art pieces that are already there. There's a uh, there's um, uh, an altar that was created by Christina Robinson, uh, and you know, and some other uh, pieces in there that are representative of that. Um, of that genre. And so we're going to be following suit. So a lot of the films that are going to screen that night are in that, um, in that kind of realm, including, um, a film that, uh, I co-produced with a filmmaker friend of mine, Jonathan Isaac uh, Jackson called the girl and her electric sheep. And then, um, we're going to have two girl and her electric sheep. Sheep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay, you're writing this down, so maybe you're gonna come watch it. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's two I other. Certainly want to see the girl in the electric sheep. Okay, good. I hope so. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you like it. Um, there's two visiting filmmakers who are gonna be accompanying us. Um, that night also, and then uh, John Slade, who uh, spends a lot of time in this building, he is premiering his. Um, he has an animated short that is, uh, based on his comic book, Afro Brother Spaceman. So he's going to be premiering that, uh, also on that Friday night at the festival. Um, and then Saturday is going to be all day at Ashe Cultural Center, um, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And it's going to start off with some matinee films, then it's going to go into. And it's, it's the mm-hmm. center on, uh, O.C. Haley yep. or in the. 1712 Aretha Castle Haley, right? Okay. Um, and so it'll be, it'll all be in, you know, uh, located in that building. Um, okay. and then we'll have, uh, we'll have some, some matinee films, uh, early in the morning. And then there's, um, there's a young filmmakers block sponsored by Making Connections. NOLA, that's one of, uh, my, that was my only sponsor last year and they came back to sponsor us again. And in, uh, cooperation with them uh we put together a film academy for some high school students and we made a film with them taught them you know basic the like the fundamentals of filmmaking uh so they produced that film then we're gonna uh have we have a new orleans block where it's you know a couple of new orleans uh centered projects and then the four o'clock time period we're gonna have a variety show which is not film centered at all, but just to, you know, showcase some of the talented artists that we have outside of the film genre. So right. we'll have, uh, mm-hmm. Tony Frederick will be hosting it. He's a comedian. He's, and we're going to be joined by Mark Caesar, who's also a comedian. He's going to do a small set. We'll have some poetry in there, Icon and John LaCarbia will do, uh, they'll be doing poetry. Then we'll have, uh, Raheem Glaspie and Lolly Mariah, who will be doing some songs along with uh, our band, Max Moran and Neil Spectric and then, uh, rapper Ray Wimley, who was on Jimmy Fallon, uh, he's going to be joining us too. So that'll be oh, memory boy. <laughs> I know, I know. I could not do what you just did to save I, my life. I've been thinking about it for a while. I have so. to keep the names of my guests in front of me. <laughs> I'm look. I'm trying to embrace it while I got it. I don't know how much longer I'll have it. So, <laughs> but um, and then after that, we'll close it out with uh, the the prime time films, uh, which these are where most of the 
award-nominated films of the festival are going to be uh, located. There's some really, really good films. All of those are visiting filmmakers. Um, and so we should have – I'm expecting to have – Everyone in that block, uh, uh, all those visiting filmmakers will be here representing their films. So it should wow. be about 25 filmmakers wow. coming in town this for is, it. This is, yeah. this is, this is, you mentioned in the beginning when we were talking for a minute that you, this wasn't like a huge production. It sounds like a pretty huge production to me. <laughs> well, it's, uh, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, we got a lot going on, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's building. We want, we want bigger. We're, we're thinking, you know, we got some, uh, some, some ideas in mind. So I think it'll be bigger in the years. Well, I mean, and, and and this is the city that it it should be happening in. No doubt, no doubt. Ge- know, geographically, yeah. like we, you know, Our we history and and the legacy. history with you know with the relationships with uh with with art that that black people have created the 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 film industry relationships that we have here. Like, there's so many reasons why this film festival can and should be here and should be, um, you know, a really popular thing, not just for the community, but, you know, hopefully for filmmakers who come in and, and ideally they are the next generation of really talented filmmakers who can realize New Orleans is a place that they should be coming to film their movies, to find their talent, to, you know, to, to source their, you know, the content that they want to put out on television. You know, we we have a, a little bit of representation here and there, but you know, we want more. Like we want we want all the nuances of our great city to be exhibited on television, and you know, that's the key to get the artists to really recognize the value here, and also at the same time to build up the artists that we have here. And I think that it, it I was going to say, it, it takes the latter. It takes uh, the artists from here to really get that portrayal right. I often say Mm -hmm. you can always tell if the musician or musical group is, when they're trying to do New Orleans music, if they're from here or not. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot to New Orleans music if you're not from here. You Mm -hmm. may be able to be a member of a band and be part of it, but um, there's... It is a city of nuances. Oh, no. <clears throat> to get it right is really difficult. So to see the, the um, homegrown talent become the filmmakers tomorrow who can get it right so that we don't. Exactly. What was that very famous example? It was where, um, oh, God, what was that movie where um, uh, one of the, the artists talked, used the expression share? Which is a Cajun expression, C H E R, you know, my, my share, you know, share. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know me. the movie though. Oh God, I, I'm again. I don't have your kind of memory. So <laughs> I'm not going to come up with it, but it was it was a, a kind of a police story, but funny. Mm-hmm. And um, he kept saying share. It was like so grating to everybody in the audience. You mm-hmm. could just feel everybody going. Ugh. That's everybody that's was, how we are when we're watching New Orleans, New Orleans on TV, and it's some actor from Los Angeles who's right. trying to like fake an accent. Right. Right. That's we all cringe a little bit inside. Yeah. Right. And and people outside of New Orleans, they're listening to it like, oh, that sounds like New Orleans. Like, no, it isn't. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> trust us. We, you know. Yeah. But yeah. So hopefully we find our way on screen right. to give. That. You know, I actually one day um, uh, when Anderson Cooper was in town during uh, Katrina, the anchor on CNN, um, and he was interviewing me. I said, by the way, can you please stop saying Nolens? <laughs> I said, we don't say Nolens. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I don't know who invented it, but we don't say Nolens. So I said, it's New Orleans mm-hmm. or New Orleans, but it is not. New Orleans. Now I, I have a lot of nerve doing this because I'm not originally from here. I'm just I'm from the South, but I'm from the South Bronx. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, how do you see our our population of filmmakers being able to grow in the city? What 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 is it going to take? What is the uh, what is the um, uh, the particular process that's going to make a difference because mm-hmm. it's always it's one thing to say we need more of this this should happen but what's it going to take right so in in my opinion I, I I believe it's you know the infrastructure uh, we have obviously really really talented musicians 
And that's because we get a lot of support from the musicians who have come here before. And they, you know, they come back and they teach, you know, or they teach while they're working. Uh, they, you know, there's, there's opportunities within the schools to like really own your craft musically. And, you know, these things are important to the people who have already gotten to that level to make sure that the, the people behind them have a chance. And that's just, you know, I think that's the same thing for filmmaking. Like a lot of, a lot of filmmakers in New Orleans, like we don't really have anybody to look up to that we can say oh let's go to this person you know like the the most famous filmmaker from new orleans tyler perry barely acknowledges us you know and probably because he didn't have anybody like i think he probably felt the same like he didn't feel support and he was like you know i could go to atlanta and people will you know help me out now he's got a studio and you know i mean i'm not you know i'm not blaming him i'm not hating on him but you know i am saying that i think that Maybe his experience would have been different if he'd have had more opportunities uh, within, you know, within schooling or maybe even just within film festivals and just, you know, just organizations that would facilitate the the, the skills and the crafts. And, you know, cause a lot of the a lot of the things that go into filmmaking and like becoming better as a filmmaker, those resources cost if you're a writer. And you want to get better at writing. You sit down in front of a computer and you just type and there's no cost to it. You know, if you're a musician, you pick up your instrument and you practice. If you're a filmmaker, you can't just say, okay, I'm just going to go make a film today, right? Because you, there's 10, 15, 50 jobs on a film set at any time. And a lot of these people, if you're doing sound design, you know, you're not, you're not doing favors. You know, you're, that's your job. If you're doing production design, if you're doing cinematography, like these are your jobs. And so you're not just going to like lend your work just for nothing. You know, you want to get compensated. So a lot of times, like, uh, you know, the filmmakers, the storytellers, people who want to get better at these things, they've got to spend money to get better at these things without uh, a lot of times the proper. So, so the, the thing, the thing about your business then is that but um, it, it, it has a much uh, cl- tighter relationship with the business side from Jump Street. You mm-hmm. have to absolutely, from the very beginning, uh, build the financial resources you need to do the job. So how do you do that? And that's, and that's difficult for creatives, you know, because, like, we're not thinking in terms of how do I monetize something. You know, we just want to make something and then be like, here, world, this is us, you know, value us, and, you know, yeah. we'll we'll give you more. But, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I, you know, find my demographic and, and how do I, you know, promote on social media. Like those are things that drive creators crazy. Like, you know, all these technical things that like we could develop those skill sets if we really wanted to work at them, but then that's less time that we're working at our craft, you know? And so uh it's, you know, it's just one of those conundrums that you find yourself in. And it's like, if there were, infrastructure and resources that could be beneficial to, you know, to the growth and, and the, and the study and, and that part of it, then, you know, we, we probably would be able to be telling our stories at this point. Hopefully 20, 30 years from now, this could be a part of the incubator to that. Hopefully, hopefully sooner. Hopefully. Yeah. Sooner. Yeah. Right. I do feel that, um, well, uh, we have been very slow to, to recognize the importance of the creatives and the creative economy in our city. Uh, I feel, and I hope I'm right, that we're in uh, approaching a turning point. Mm-hmm. There's going to be greater commitment. Um, I'm so counting too. on our, our mayor. I think she gets it and, and is committed to this. I think she's going to find some ways to, um, let's say, introduce more resources into the funding streams. Mm-hmm. And I, and, I, and, I, and I do want to say that the mayor's office has definitely been very uh, helpful with this festival. Carol Morton, who's the uh, director of film, so, yes. uh, she, you know, met with me directly, me and my um, one of my steering committee members, Bobby Mason. Uh, and I shout out to my steering committee. These these guys are amazing, like for getting me connected with these uh, with mm-hmm. these places. But, um, you know, Carol Morton opened up her office. Lisa Alexis, uh, who's communications department in the mayor's office, you know, they, they said, yes, come in. We want to talk talk about this, how can we help you? And they were very forthcoming with helping. And I believe that's a relationship that they want to continue to build and cultivate. We could talk about so much more, but we're coming up on the end of the show. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I want to go back to the film uh, festival and make sure everybody 
Uh, here's exactly what it is, where it is. So let's reiterate that before we close. No off. doubt. And maybe is there a website? Yep, there's a website. So you can visit us at bffno.com. Like that's uh, the acronym for Black Film Festival of New Orleans, bffno.com. Uh, Black Film Festival of New Orleans on Facebook is also uh, a, a place you can find us. And there's information there. We're going to be this weekend at Ashe on Saturday all day. We're going to be at uh, Stella Jones Friday during the day. We're going to be at New Orleans African American Museum Friday night and it's all free. Come out. Oh my goodness. Free. Free. Now, all now, of it. Well, now what are you thinking? You gotta put, put I want to see the people in the building. The, put the donation boxes out. I least. might throw a donation box out. I might. Put some donation boxes out. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you, I'm Jean. very excited about what you're doing. I'm going to try to make some of it. I'm heading out of the city um, part of the weekend so I won't get to all of it but I, I, I can check on it. Um, this is Gene Nathan. Listen, I'm not sure what's going to happen with our show next week because I've got um, something i got to do uh, at that particular time. So we're going to set something up, and I might have a guest uh, host uh, doing the show. So uh, watch out for whoever pops up. You're just never going to know. Um, this is Gene Nathan. This is Cross Town Conversations. Thank you for being out there for us.